I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings, host of The Big Story. For six years now, we've been telling one story a day, every one of them about something that matters to Canadians. This spring, though, we're going deeper. The Big Story presents Paydirt, the inside story of Ontario's Greenbelt scandal. From political games to stag and doe parties, endangered species, RCMP investigations, and Las Vegas massages, you will hear the full story. The Big Story presents Paydirt. New episodes every Monday, and you can get them all by following The Big Story wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. I'm Bob McDonald. Welcome to Quirks and Quarks. On this week's show, scary talk. Human voices are terrifying for African animals like antelope, giraffes, and even hyenas. Animals that we sampled were two times more likely to run when they heard the sounds of humans talking compared to even lions. And two scientists who met at a photocopier share a Nobel Prize for the technology behind mRNA COVID vaccines. We would sort of joke with each other that someday RNA is going to be a fantastic new drug, but we would probably be dead before that happens. Plus, the James Webb Space Telescope spots baby black holes, tar pits reveal extinction hints, and solving the hard problem of concrete's environmental impact. All this today on Quirks and Quarks. It's early October, which means it's Nobel Prize week. And this year's Medicine Prize went for a development that literally changed the course of recent history. The Nobel Assembly at Karolinski Institute has today decided to award the 2023 Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine jointly to Kathleen Carrico and Drew Weissman for their discoveries concerning nucleoside base modifications that enabled the development of effective mRNA vaccines against COVID-19. We never would have gotten safe and effective COVID-19 vaccines so quickly if it weren't for the groundbreaking work of Dr. Carrico and Dr. Weissman. Their work helped prevent millions of deaths around the world. In hindsight, it's clear how their discoveries paved the way for the mRNA vaccines that help us control the pandemic. But when they made their critical advances nearly two decades ago, the importance of what they were doing went right over most people's heads. In fact, they had difficulty publishing their 2005 paper on the subject, but now it's made them Nobel Prize winners. We caught up with Dr. Carrico and Dr. Weissman to hear about their discoveries. Hello, and congratulations on the Nobel Prize. Thank you. Thank you. I have to ask, first of all, what was it like to get that call from Sweden this week, Dr. Carrico? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was a surprise. Very early it came, you know, before four o'clock. And, uh, you know, I was uh, very happy, delighted. And uh, they couldn't reach Drew. And so I had to text him whether he received also the call. And Dr. Weissman, what was your response? So initially I thought an anti-vaxxer or somebody was pranking us and and it wasn't real. (laughs) So I, I, I waited till around 5.30 to actually get the call and then to watch the press release and then I believed it. (laughs) I guess in this uh, age of misinformation out there, it could have been a crank call. 
Now, yeah. Dr. Weissman, you won the prize with Dr. Carrico, who you worked with for many years, starting, well, going back to the 90s at the University of Pennsylvania. How did you two meet each other? So I think Katie tells the story better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that just like then, you know, I was more talkative and, you know, I could see this new guy on the hallway there using the Xerox machine, that copy machine that I usually copied the articles. And then, you know, when I approached, I started to talk to him, brag about that I work with RNA. And then he quietly said that what he's doing and that he came from Fauci's lab and they're working on HIV vaccine. And then uh, when he learned that I use RNA, messenger RNA, I can make messenger RNA, we thought that, oh, we can work together. And I made the mRNA for the first project. Well, that must have been an exciting moment when you both realized that you were working on uh, or had an interest in RNA. Dr. Weissman? We came at it from completely different points of view. Katie is a biochemist and an RNA molecular biologist. I'm an immunologist, hence my interest in vaccines. But from the time we started working together, we kept generating new and interesting and unexpected results. And that has kept going ever since. Now, let's just back up a bit and just remind us how it works. Like, how does it actually do the thing that made it so valuable as a vaccine for COVID-19? The messenger RNA, we did not invent it. You know, nature invented and was discovered that we have it in our body 60-some years ago. So the messenger RNA is a blueprint, what kind of protein has to be made. And uh, in the case of COVID-19 vaccine, the mRNA codes for one of the critical protein of the virus, which uh, can uh, generate the immune response, which is protecting us. Now, just to be clear, just so that I understand this, the protein that you're having our cells produce is the spikes, those little spikes that are on the outside of the virus that look like peppercorn stuck to it. It's just producing those, correct? Yep, just the spike. So that the immune system will recognize them. So, Dr. Carrico, what was the work you did that laid the groundwork for the development of mRNA vaccines? So, at the beginning, I was focusing on using messenger RNA, or that was my goal, that codes for therapeutic protein, And when uh, Drew was using human special immune cells, and uh, we learned that it was uh, the RNA's inflammatory, as a curiosity-driven science, you know, we try to understand with Drew that uh, why it is uh, inflammatory, why it caused the RNA inflammation. And then we were doing a set of experiments, and we realized that if we modify the RNA, then it will be non-inflammatory. So that was what we received the award here, that... uh, generating messenger RNA, which is uh, non-inflammatory. So when you say inflammatory, you mean that at the beginning the mRNA was toxic? So the critical first issue was you couldn't use it as a vaccine because it induced inflammation and it made animals sick. That's bad for therapeutics. With the nucleoside modification, we got rid of that inflammation But importantly, we increase the amount of protein produced by upwards of a thousand fold. That's important because all of the earlier RNA clinical trials failed. They didn't give any protection 
likely because so little protein was made. And getting rid of inflammation also solved the problem of making much more protein. How difficult was it at the beginning, Dr. Carrico, to get the research community to see how important your work was? At the beginning, focus was always on, on the DNA for gene therapy and other things, so that the mRNA was, uh, you know, really <laughs> not in the front at all. You have to understand that at the beginning, really, the, as Drew also mentioned, the RNA, when we delivered, produced only a little protein could be produced in a very short period of time. And so probably that was why many of the other scientists did not like to work with it. But uh, we did a lot of improvements and then it was getting better and better. But people thought that it is not worthy. But we eventually established a company with you and then we get the, I get the first grant as a business grant. So it was difficult to get... Uh, funding for it because people assume that the RNA is so fragile that it immediately degrades and it is not useful. So Dr. Carrico, how was it for you to see how effective the vaccine actually worked against COVID-19? Ten years ago I joined BioNTech so we worked already together with Pfizer from 2018 to develop an mRNA-based vaccine against influenza and we already could see how powerful this technology is and all of the data was presented to the authorities and we get permission also to get start the human trial. And on those preclinical data, those animal studies, we could see how powerful the mRNA-based technology is. And of course, when we could see how good it is protecting against SARS-CoV-2, this coronavirus somewhat Maybe I am naive, I am not a vaccinologist that, uh, you know, I was not that much surprised. I expected that, that it would be so powerful. Well, Dr. Weisman, now that this technology has proven itself with COVID-19, how widely used do you think it would, could be in the future? So right now, I think there's about 250 clinical trials. It's probably more by now. I haven't checked in a little while. We're doing seven phase one clinical trials on vaccines. Moderna, BioNTech, and many other companies and pharmaceuticals are doing many different pathogens, vaccines with RNA. So I, I think it's going to be a huge expansion. There has also been a clinical trial for gene therapy using modified mRNA that in a phase one trial was highly successful. So I think that the technology is here, it's in people, it's working, the growth could potentially be enormous. Wow. So the future of messenger RNA technology looks pretty bright. No, definitely. How satisfying is it for you to not only see your work vindicated after 20 years, but to see the literally life-saving impact that it's had on people? Katie and I, thinking back into the 90s, we would talk about the potential for RNA. And we would sort of joke with each other that someday RNA is going to be a fantastic new drug, but we would probably be dead before that happens. So as a clinician researcher, I've always wanted to develop therapies that help people. And I think we've accomplished that. 
I thought that one day everybody has uh, some RNA in their freezer, refrigerator, and they are using at home. <laughs> and it all started with a chance meeting at a photocopier machine. <laughs> yep. Dr. Weissman, Dr. Carrico, congratulations on winning the Nobel Prize, and thank you both so much for giving us your time. Thank you. Thank you. Dr. Kathleen Carrico is an adjunct professor of neurosurgery, and Dr. Drew Weissman is a professor of vaccine research, both at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. They share the 2023 Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine. Words can hurt, but we don't normally think of them as terrifying. So when we talk about the impact of humans on wildlife, the usual suspects are things like climate change and loss of habitat. But there is something else that we do to animals that's much more direct. We scare them, just by having them hear our voices, which are even scarier than the most fearsome of predators, like the mighty lion. That's the result of a new study led by Dr. Liana Zanette, a professor of biology from Western University in London, Ontario. Dr. Zanette, welcome back to Quirks and Quarks. Oh, I'm thrilled to be back. Thank you. So why are animals generally afraid of us? Because we're predators. <laughs> As it turns out, we're significant predators. We kill all manner of animal, and we kill them at higher times the rate that non-human predators do. Worldwide, humans kill medium-sized carnivores, so things like raccoons and skunks and stuff like that, at five times the rate at which their large carnivore predators do. And we kill those large carnivores at nine times the rate. This is why we are called a super predator, because we are super lethal. Well, tell me about the, your latest study on, on studying our relationship to the animals and how they fear us. First of all, where did you conduct it? We conducted this in uh, the greater Kruger area. So this is in South Africa. And it's a place where there is, it's fantastic. I mean, it's a joy to be out there. It has an intact uh, mammalian community with uh, all the large carnivores and all the prey still intact. So it's an incredible place to be. What were some of the animals that you observed? We observed 19 different species, <laughs> and I won't list them all for you today. And uh, so we were interested in the entire mammalian community here and the effects that the fear of predators, including the human predator, had on that community. And so we looked at things that were, you know, the smallest were an eight kilogram kind of tiny little antelope. You know, it went from there, right? It went to uh, zebras and giraffe and, uh, and everything in between all the way up to the largest thing, which was elephants. Now, did you also look at predators as well as prey? Predators were in there as well, yeah. Well, tell me about your setup. How, how did you actually do the experiment? This all sort of starts with an off-the-shelf camera trap, but we use the video feature of it because we wanted to get behavior, right? We don't want to get a sort of static snapshot of something. We want to gauge behavior. And so the way it worked is we put the, uh, the camera trap on a tree and they go about a, a meter and a half up. And then above the camera, we have a custom-built speaker that we designed in the lab. The idea being that when an animal walks past the camera, it begins the video, 
And then the video triggers the speaker that's above it and it plays one of our treatments. The other important aspect of the experimental setup is that we did this in the dry season. And so water for animals is a pretty scarce resource during this time in South Africa. And so we trained our cameras on water holes because we know that animals are going to come down there to drink. And also lions kill at water holes. Most lions kill at water holes. And so the focus of attention for the camera was about 10 meters away from the camera, sort of uh, looking toward the water hole so that when the animal comes past, it would hear the sound of, for example, a human speaking at about 60 decibels, right? So it's just humans talking in conversation. The animal would get exposed to that. And then we contrasted it with other things, including, like you were saying, the king of beasts, so lions. And so we used uh, sounds that uh, lions use to communicate with themselves when they're in groups, their snarls and growls, right? And so they would hear either humans uh, at about 60 decibels or they would hear lions talking at about 60 decibels. So what kind of response did you see? You know, animals know who their enemies are. And the kinds of behavioral responses that we're looking at are just like super simple, like straightforward things. For example, when, when I'm out in South Africa, right, if I actually hear a lion, I run. Right. <laughs> I think I most mean, of us I think, would. And, and so this is one of the key behaviors we look at, right? Because it is so clearly a fear response. You hear a predator around, you take off, you distance yourself from the predator. That was one of our key measures. And the second one was how long it took them to leave the water hole. Because, you know, I mean, that's kind of the ecological cost of the whole thing, that if you're afraid of something, you're going to want to distance yourself. So you're going to run and you are are going to be more likely to also leave the water hole and find another drinking spot somewhere else where, you know, it's not contaminated with the presence of humans. So what was the difference in reaction time that you saw in the animals from the human voices compared to the sound of the lions? Animals that we sampled, they were two times more likely to flee, to run, when they heard the sounds of humans talking compared to even lions. And they left the water hole 40% faster as well. And that it really pervaded across this entire savanna mammal community. Fully 95% of the animals that we surveyed. Boy, what went through your mind when you saw that they were responding much more strongly to human voices? Well, you know, like it's remarkable that hearing humans speaking that inspired the most fear in these animals, because a couple of other treatments that we had, a couple of other sounds that we had were sounds that are associated with human lethality, right? Human killing, gunshots and dogs, because humans hunt with both guns and dogs. What we found there is that the sounds associated with human huntings did not lead to as much running and leaving the water hole as did hearing humans per se. You know, indicating that it's not it's not the human sort of disturbance or proxies that are the thing that is most to fear. It is really that it's the the signal of really intense danger that you know I have got to leave this area is 
decidedly the sound of the human voice. Maybe the uh, lesson here is that if you go on a safari, keep quiet. <laughs> keep quiet. Stay in your car. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> Dr. Zanette, thank you so much for your time. Oh, you're welcome. Dr. Leanna Zanette is a professor of biology from Western University in London, Ontario. You know those adorable viral videos of a nearsighted baby putting glasses on for the first time? Do you like them? Can you see? Yeah. It's amazing to see the look of joy on that tiny face as mom's face suddenly springs into focus. Well, you can imagine the same smiles on the faces of scientists lucky enough to get observing time with the new James Webb Space Telescope. Except in their case, they're seeing things no one's ever seen before. Like explorers of old, astrophysicists using the Webb Telescope can now see beyond the horizon, out to unprecedented distances in our early cosmos. And the view is spectacular. In particular, the view of black holes, which are turning out to be far more common in the early universe than many were expecting. Dr. Stephanie Junot is an astrophysicist from Quebec who's working to understand how all those black holes got there in the first place. Dr. Junot is an associate astronomer with the U.S. National Optical Infrared Astronomy Research Laboratory in Tucson, Arizona. Hello and welcome to our program. Hello, Bob. Thank you for having me. Now, how far back in time can you see with the James Webb Space Telescope? So we're going almost near the very beginning, a few million years after the Big Bang. So this means we're looking back over 13 billion years ago. So wow. this is the time it takes the light to travel. Wow. Now, I've read that you said that looking at the results from the Webb Telescope has been like opening a giant box of surprises. <laughs> what have you seen? So to me, one of the biggest surprises is to see how many of those more common and more ordinary black holes we can detect for the very first time at these very large distances. Up to now, we could only find the most extreme, most luminous objects. They're called quasars, and these have a, the most massive black holes. And it wasn't clear whether it would be even possible or feasible to see those lower, kind of more common black holes that are more ordinary, but in a sense, harder to, to detect. So why is it a surprise that there are so many of them? So I think there are two different ways that we can set our expectations. So what did we expect to find at these very early times when the universe was young? So one way is to compare to what we see right now in the nearby universe. And we see a certain fraction of galaxies as this kind of active black holes. So compared to this, it seems that it's more common back there. And then the other way that we can set an expectation from what we observe is those very luminous quasars that we could start to already see with the Hubble Space Telescope, for example. If we extrapolate based on how many of those bright ones we see, these kind of biggest monsters, how many do we expect of the, the smaller ones? And compared to that, we find like 10 times as many or even more. Now, why is that a surprise? So one might have expected that basically the, the proportion would kind of be normal as expected. And I want to say that it's not necessarily a surprise for everyone, because in my case, I was almost arguing with my colleagues 
uh, when we were putting our telescope proposals together that I thought we were going to find them. Because basically those big black holes have to come from somewhere. So because the giant ones exist, it means that there's going to be a population of the smaller ones that can grow into them, basically. But it takes time for black holes to grow. And yet you said that you're seeing the universe when it was very, very young. That's correct. And in fact, this is a very big question right now. We're trying to understand what are the seeds of the black holes and how do they form in the first place. And because they exist at such early times, it means that they have to either start from a very large seed or they have to grow extremely fast. And right now we're still trying to understand uh, between these scenarios and, and JWST is really helping us making progress on this question. Now, when you say seeds, what do you mean by that? So black hole seeds are also black holes, but they would be a black hole that's just formed. So for example, a very massive star, so the star has to be a hundred times, say, the mass of the sun. If it collapses at the end of its life, then the outer layers will maybe go supernova and, and shed, but the inner portion of the star will collapse onto itself and that would create a black hole. So the black hole is just being born, so we call it a seed black hole. And in this case, the seed maybe is only tens to a hundreds of times the mass of the sun. But we're thinking they could be much larger seeds. So for example, in the early universe, there could be conditions such that there could be a giant cloud of gas, like, like so big that it's several hundreds of thousands of times the mass of the sun, but distributed in this cloud. And if the cloud starts to cool and collapse, and it does not fragment into pieces to form stars, instead the entire cloud collapse into one object, this object would be a black hole seed. But this would be a much more massive seed. So we're talking now 10,000 to 100,000 times the mass of the sun, like in this one big seed. Oh, I see. So two ways to make black holes, one from a star and one from a giant cloud of gas. Correct. How much information does the James Webb Space Telescope give you to help figure out what it is that you're actually looking at? So the James Webb is very powerful because in addition to having imagers, it also has ways to take spectra, so to do spectroscopy. And the spectra tell us a lot more information. So what this does is it disperses the light, a bit like raindrops would disperse the sunlight into a rainbow. So we have this basically infrared rainbow. And in this case, we can look at the shape of the spectrum and search for very specific signatures. So for example, when gas is very hot and ionized by a black hole that's very active, what happens in the spectrum, we see these very bright features, these kind of bright lines. And then we can measure how bright is the line, but also the shape of the line. So the line comes from very hot gas. It's like a glowing disk of gas around the black hole. And the bigger the black hole, the more this glowing disk of gas has to swirl around really fast. And it's so extreme that it really broadens the line. So we can measure the spectrum. How broad is the line? And basically, the broader the line, the more massive the black hole. So we can measure and basically weigh, you know, measure the mass of these black holes from the James Webb Space Telescope spectroscopy. Wow, that's astounding. When you're looking that far back in time, you can tell how large an object is. Can that same information tell you what uh, these black holes came from, whether they came from stars or giant clouds of gas? 
So to answer this question, what we need to do is to compare with different models and predictions. So we can make calculations basically of given a starting mass, how long would it take to grow and what's the growth rate? So the other thing that some of these observations with the James Webb Space Telescope can tell us is how rapidly is this black hole growing right now? So it's basically like trying to go back in time. So we say, this is the mass, this is how fast it's growing. So what was the starting point? How long ago did it have to start and how much did it have to grow? And right now it's a little bit tricky because the very furthest away black holes that we have found so far, this comes from a couple of different teams. They're just borderline. So basically at the moment, they're massive enough that maybe they do come from a big seed, but they also just on the line where they could still come from a small seed if there was a lot of growth, like a lot of rapid growth. So there's just on this kind of borderline where we can't quite tell yet. It sounds like the universe at the very beginning was a very active place. Yes, indeed, because we're thinking now we're going back to the epoch where everything was just starting to form. The stars were forming, galaxies were forming, black holes were forming. And it's a bit of a chicken or egg question, in fact. We're still trying to understand in astronomy, do the black holes come first or do the galaxies come first? So what's it going to take to solve that mystery? Well, we do have 10 more years coming up <laughs> with the JWST. We're actually just scratching the surface right now. So these that we've seen, the results, they've come out and they're in the journals, they're also in the news. They're really the, the early kind of breakthrough results. So to me, it's very promising because already with just the first data, we're learning a lot. And what it will take is to keep basically using the JWST and try to find even more example black holes, but also push to a little bit smaller masses. Dr. Jeannot, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. Canadian astronomer Dr. Stephanie Jeannot is based at the National Science Foundation's Noir Lab in Tucson, Arizona. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings, host of The Big Story. For six years now, we've been telling one story a day, every one of them about something that matters to Canadians. This spring, though, we're going deeper. The Big Story presents Pay Dirt, the inside story of Ontario's Greenbelt scandal. From political games to stag and doe parties, endangered species, RCMP investigations, and Las Vegas massages, you will hear the full story. The Big Story presents Pay Dirt. New episodes every Monday, and you can get them all by following The Big Story wherever you get your podcast. Coming up later in the show, dealing with the hard problem. Concrete production is a major source of carbon dioxide emissions. Can we make it greener? You could improve lithium-ion batteries, and that would be hard, and you'd have an impact. But you could have the same impact by making cement just 1% less carbon-intensive. In recent years, massive wildfires have plagued many parts of the globe. Canada, of course, but also the U.S., Australia, Portugal, Greece, the list goes on. And as the planet continues to warm, it's unlikely we have seen the last of such large-scale fires. But the planet has warmed before, and like today, there have been consequences. Research by Dr. Robin O'Keefe has found new evidence of those consequences that sheds light on the extinction of North America's megafauna. Animals like saber-toothed cats, ground sloths, and dire wolves 
13,000 years ago. And he thinks fire might have been responsible. Dr. O'Keefe is from the Department of Biological Sciences at Marshall University in Huntington, West Virginia, and a research associate at the La Brea Tar Pits and Museum in Los Angeles. Dr. O'Keefe, welcome to Quirks and Quarks. Thanks for having me, Bob. So what animals did you study? Uh, We started out studying just the carnivores because they're the most commonly preserved animals. And that's the coyotes, the wolves, the saber-toothed cats. And then we also wanted to look at the herbivores, the large extinct bison, and uh, we also looked at horses. That's how we started. Now, did these all disappear at the same time? They did, with the exception of uh, camels, but camels kind of came later. So most of them went extinct very abruptly, and most of them went extinct at the same time. Now, where did you study their fossils? Uh, We studied these animals at the La Brea Tar Pits in Los Angeles, California. Tell me about the La Brea Tar Pits. We've talked about them on this program before, but just refresh us on what they're like. Well, it's kind of the most crazy paleontological wonderland on Earth, where you just go down to Hollywood, and you can literally see the Hollywood sign. You're on Wiltshire Boulevard, and uh, there's this park, which is a pretty good-sized park, and, and that's the Tar Pits. And so it's not a very big area, and it's right in the center of Los Angeles. And uh, there's hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of fossils preserved in the tar in this tiny little space. I've actually been there, and it is unusual to be in downtown Los Angeles with all the high-rises, and then all of a sudden there's this black pit in the middle of a park that smells bad, too. It's still bubbling. Yeah, the tar actually comes up through the roads all around the park. (laughs) So what was the uh, previous idea on what caused this spike of extinctions? There's, no one argues that the megafauna would extinct about 13,000 years ago, but what caused it has been a huge debate. And that debate's really been between humans caused the extinction or climate change caused the extinction. So we went to La Brea and tried to ask ourselves that question, what's really driving this? And the answer we got was not what we expected, because the answer we got approximately was fire. Fire caused the extinction. What led you to believe that fire was responsible for it? Well, because humans have been living in North America for at least 5,000 years. We know that human, the human history, the human story in North America goes back to maybe 20,000 years. So the humans are living with the megafauna for a long time, for thousands of years in some kind of equilibrium. So this old kind of 20th century overkill blitzkrieg hypothesis certainly didn't hold water. The timing wasn't right. And then if you look at the climate change, well, the climate really changes 15,000, 16,000 years ago. It's actually relatively stable going into the actual extinction event. So the climate change didn't really add up either. And then, of course, going into the study, fire just wasn't on our radar. But when we took a step out and started looking at the pollen, so we're like, well, you know, we're having trouble identifying which of our two hypotheses might be correct. And we looked at the environmental data. And then we saw the fire data and the pollen data and the the floral transition. And it was like, oh, my God, here it is. Now, when you say pollen data, where did that come from? One of the wonderful things about La Brea is that there is about 75 miles away a lake. And that lake's been there for hundreds of thousands of years. And it slowly deposits sediment. So as it does so, every year it samples the pollen that blows into it. And so we have this wonderful pollen core that comes out of this lake. And we can see what the flora looked like. We can see what the plant community looked like in the Los Angeles basin at the same time as the extinction's happening. So what did the pollen tell you? That it looked very different, that it looked more like a woodland, more like Oregon does today, or even western Washington. 
And and what was the climate doing at that time? It was pretty stable, and then it got really dry, and then it cooled off and got even drier. So it was changing too. Okay, so that tells you that the the climate changed, the vegetation changed. What's the evidence for fire? The fire is actually counting charcoal particles in that same core. So it turns out that one of the things you can do if you have this lake core that you got the pollen out of is you can just go through and count the charcoal particles every year. But when we saw that data, it really blew us away. As my colleague Reagan Dunn says, she fell out of her chair. (laughs) So when you put all of that together then, what's the picture of what happened in North America 13,000 years ago? One thing we show kind of teased out of the data is that we can show the impact that humans have by taking away herbivores, and that seems to intensify fire activity. So there's this kind of phase shift. But, but I think at 13,000 years ago, it would have been just catastrophic fires. Now, how big they really were and how many there were is a, a difficult question. Because, you know, if you have a big fire locally, maybe you get more or less charcoal. So, so those are all open areas of research. But, but this, this fire event is unlike anything that happened in history before. It's orders of magnitude bigger, at least one and a half order of magnitude bigger. So how much of that fire was caused by humans, do you think? Well, like any phase transition, everything plays together. It's a positive feedback loop. So the impacts of humans knock on to the impact of the climate change, which knocks on to the change in flora, and it kind of spirals into this giant cataclysm, this giant fire event. And then a new equilibrium establishes itself, and that's this fire-resistant chaparral that we're used to seeing in California today. Were the humans starting all of those fires, or were the natural fires part of it? I mean, I'm trying to get a sense of perspective here. That's a really good question, and this paper was in review for 18 months, and that question was what it was really turning on, because initially we attributed the fires to humans, and the, the fire experts in review said, you can't demonstrate that, and they're right. And, and so that's what we tried to do at the end, is instead of having extinction causality be a couple of horses in a race, put all the factors into a model and try to quantify the influence of each. And the big red arrow in the model is humans causing fires. When you look at it in the abstract, of course, that's one of the fundamental human behaviors. We've been doing that for two million years. What was it like when you realized that everything lined up and pointed to large-scale wildfires? It's one of those aha moments. You know, you have your preconceived notions blown away, and then you have this new discovery, and you're the first person to know. And then we shared it among the team, and we all knew, and we all knew it was really important. And so it was fantastic. (laughs) So as we watch wildfires devastate our landscape today, is there a lesson for us here? Well, of course. It's a cautionary tale, because if one of these big ecosystem transitions is diagnosed by catastrophic fires— And the obvious question is, is that occurring today? And that's a very good question. I think that we should get that answered. Dr. O'Keefe, thank you so much for your time. Nice talking to you, Bob. Dr. Robin O'Keefe is from the Department of Biological Sciences at Marshall University in Huntington, West Virginia, and a research associate at the La Brea Tar Pits and Museum in Los Angeles. In many Canadian cities, it seems like there are only two seasons, winter and construction. But Canada's not the only place where the sight of cranes and the sound of jackhammers are ubiquitous. In fact, 
According to last month's UN Environmental Program report, the equivalent of the entire city of Paris is added to the world in new buildings every week. All this construction has a significant impact on the environment. The whole sector accounts for roughly 37% of global greenhouse gas emissions, with much of it from a single culprit, concrete. So there are substantial efforts underway to make greener concrete at every stage of its production. Quirks and Quarks producer Olsi Sorokina spoke to some of the scientists who are building a more sustainable future for the concrete industry. Living in a modern city means being surrounded by concrete. Buildings, sidewalks, roads, bridges, parking lots. It's hard to imagine the shapes of human environments without concrete. Or cement. Cement is the biggest industry by mass in the world. We use more cement than any other material besides water. But there is a price to be paid for this. Concrete production makes up as much as 8% of the total global emissions of carbon dioxide, and that number is only expected to rise. So finding more sustainable ways to make concrete is top of mind for scientists. My name is Leah Ellis. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Sublime Systems. One thing I remember from a material science class I took at Dalhousie University was a professor said, you know, you could improve lithium-ion batteries. You could make them twice as good as they are now. And that would be hard and you'd have an impact. But you could have the same impact by making cement just 1% less carbon intensive because it's such a big lever. A small improvement has a really big effect. And I thought, wow, that's awesome. Going to the biggest problems um, is where you have the biggest impact. So I looked into some of the ways researchers like Dr. Ellis are trying to make concrete green. And for Dr. Ellis, it starts with concrete's essential ingredient, cement. So cement is the glue that holds the rocks, the aggregates together to make concrete. And it's the process of making cement that makes concrete so carbon intensive. You make cement by taking um, calcium carbonate, uh, also known as limestone, and you take that and you put that in a kiln. You heat it first to about 800, 900 degrees Celsius. At that point, it decomposes at that temperature and releases a tremendous amount of CO2. Then if you're making today's Portland cement, you heat the calcium even further to 1400 degrees Celsius, which is a wicked hot temperature. You have to use a fossil fueled fired kiln to get efficiently to that temperature. Once you've made that phase, you quench it. So it drops out of the kiln, is cooled very quickly, and you've frozen that phase in place. As you just heard from Dr. Ellis, making cement the old-fashioned way takes an incredible amount of energy. Essentially, cooking limestone and transforming it chemically so it will magically become rock glue when it reacts with water. But heat is not the only way to do this. Dr. Ellis and her colleagues are working to make cement more sustainable by replacing a process that requires a lot of fossil fuel-generated heat with something that does not, electricity. So we are replacing the high-temperature fossil fuel combustion-driven kilns with an ambient-temperature electrochemical process that has a path to being more efficient and, and less energy-intensive than today's process. And what results is a free-flowing cement powder that can be stored and poured and performs 
just like the cement we've been using. So same or better strength and durability. And ultimately, it hardens into the same concrete that we've been using for millennia. Dr. Ellis came up with a way to drive the chemical process that transforms limestone into cement with electricity instead of heat. And just in case you forgot, it was a lot of heat. 1400 degrees Celsius, which is a wicked hot temperature. Apart from reducing the heat, the process isn't too different from traditional cement making. If you're looking at a cement plant, you would see rocks and minerals first getting crushed into a powder. And then in today's method, it would go into a long fossil-fueled rotary kiln with an enormous fire at one end that's very hot and sort of melts and sinters these things as they go through. And then at the end, it's, it's crushed again into the final cement powder. Sublime's system looks similar. We still, um, you know, crush rocks to put them into our process. But you would first see an electrolyzer stack. So stack of electrodes with, you know, positive and negative terminals. And we'd put the powdered rocks through through our process. And on the other end, you would get free-flowing powders. This method manufactures cement under temperatures below 100 degrees Celsius. That's less than a tenth of the heat it takes to start the same chemical reactions in a kiln. I like to say Sublime is the electric vehicle of cement making. And electrochemistry is a very efficient, almost surgical way of of doing chemical transformations with a minimal amount of energy. So, you know, doing things thermally is like hitting things with a stick of dynamite, whereas electrochemistry is maybe you know, going at the same problem with with a chisel. And so there's a pathway for us to get really surgical about um, the way we make cement in the same way that, you know, an electric motor is much more efficient than a combustion motor where so much is just lost, lost to heat that's not going to driving the process forward. So not only does the system potentially use less energy, because it needs less heat, but it uses a kind of energy, electricity, that could come from renewable resources. So changing the kind of energy we use to make cement could do a lot to reduce the carbon impact of concrete. But technology might be able to do a bit more than that by changing the formula for cement, which would be a real innovation. While today's construction is all glass towers and modern designs, concrete and cement production is a millennia-old practice. Making concrete is actually um, a knowledge that we've had, you know, as as humans um, since ancient times. And so, you know, very, very, very early on, we learned as humans that we can mix things that have cementitious properties to them with water or with lime and create concrete-like materials that later on turn into rock. My name is Samaya Nasiri, and I'm an associate professor in the Civil and Environmental Engineering Department at University of California, Davis. Scientists like Dr. Nasiri are figuring out how we can substitute parts of this ancient recipe of rock, water, and glue that holds them together in a way that makes structures just as strong and just as durable. Cement, or Portland cement as the scientists call it, makes up only about 20% of concrete, but it accounts for nearly 75% of concrete's emissions. 
Professor Nasiri is working on greener materials that can substitute for some of the cement, while making sure the concrete is still able to do its job. Now, um, we have to make sure as we're doing that, we are not compromising properties of concrete. So we need to maintain durability and we need to maintain mechanical um, attributes of concrete for the target application. So this is where it gets challenging is that we can't just go and use any green material that we find out there. We have to make sure that it will chemically and physically do what we need it to do in concrete. Instead of only using cement as a binding substance in concrete, Nasiri's team experimented with mixing other materials to see if they can make concrete come out just as strong and durable. One of the ways to um, look at reducing um, Portland cement in concrete is using nanomaterials. And the idea here is that nanomaterials, um, because they have such a significant surface area, could um, play as seeding sites um, for more of the crystalline hydrates of Portland cement to grow and create more calcium silicate hydrate, which gives the concrete its strength. To put it another way, when you add nanomaterials to a little bit of cement, they speed up the chemical reactions needed to make more cement particles within this mixture. That helps make the resulting rock glue stronger and more durable. And that means it goes a little farther. So we can use less cement to get the same amount of concrete. Okay, so where do you get these useful nanomaterials? How about in the back of the lobster roll truck or the crab shack? Nasiri is experimenting with different kinds of renewable materials to mix with cement, but one of the promising ones is ground-up crustacean shells. Using shellfish particles in concrete takes care of two sustainability challenges at once, reducing the amount of cement needed and the disposal of food waste. We know that the seafood industry produces these shells, shrimp shells and lobster and crab shells, and, and they don't have a reuse. They're typically treated at a cost and disposed of either in the ocean, back in the ocean or in the landfill. And so the idea here was to derive their nanofibers and nanocrystalline structures and turn them into a value-added admixture for concrete. While it accounts for a lot of emissions, cement is not the only part of concrete production that has environmental impact. Aggregates, the rock and sand that are mixed with cement to make concrete, have considerable ecological cost. Gravel has to be quarried, and a shortage of the right kind of sand for concrete has become a global issue, which has led to damaged coastlines where it has been dug or dredged unsustainably. And then all this stuff has to be transported by ship, train or trucks, with all the associated greenhouse gas emissions. Then there's the issue of what to do with concrete at the end of its life. And there are projects right here in Canada working on a more sustainable solution. In the middle of the Fraser River between Vancouver and Richmond, there's a tiny island. Here, in a dusty yard, you can see all the ingredients that go into making concrete. Water, sand, rock, mixer trucks, and metal forms for pouring concrete. But this operation is not like other concrete yards. The first two projects we heard about focused on the first of the three R's, reduce. This Canadian concrete yard is working to reuse and recycle. 
Here, waste concrete from demolished buildings and roads is cleaned up from debris and used as aggregate. Our idea is rather than considering it as a waste, uh, many other countries are utilizing it as another raw material. That's Sharia Alam, professor of civil engineering at the University of British Columbia. He studies the use of demolition concrete in construction as a way to reduce the carbon footprint of the industry by recycling the material that takes so much energy to produce and by keeping the waste concrete out of the landfill. You can process them and use it the same way of gravel that you're using for producing concrete or crushed stones. And we have crushed those old concrete and uh, we have to properly grade them and make it ready for producing new concrete. And what we have seen, you will be able to produce very high-quality concrete with those crushed concrete. Demolition concrete has many different uses in construction. For example, in many cases, it can be used instead of newly mined rock or sand. And we have actually used it in some of our projects in the industries, and we have been monitoring their performance over the last five, six years, and it shows as good as performance as the same concrete, but we have to understand that different concrete has different uses. So it depends like what kind of use we are talking about. And based on that use, you have different strength and durability requirement. So if you're talking about, say, for example, use of sidewalks or foundations, because the, the strength requirement is low, so there's no require, uh, no brainer to use recycled concrete. But if you're talking about high-rise buildings, where you need reinforced concrete columns. So in those high-rise buildings, we may not necessarily use recycled concrete. Maybe we can make concrete better, using less energy, less cement, and recycling it more effectively. But the real solution is just to make less of it. And one easy way to do that is to change our behavior, so that when we use it, we make it last. Dr. Alam. Concrete has been used for thousands of years, and many of our structures, ancient structures, if you see, they have been standing for thousands of years of structures still standing, uh, which shows that if you build it right, they can be quite durable. We are into a vicious cycle of building, demolishing, and reconstructing. So rather than going into this kind of vicious cycle, we should think about building our infrastructure highly durable so that this has much longer life. Rather than having 50 years of design life, we should think about 200, 300 years. Then only we can really fight climate change. So with these rock-solid plans in place, scientists have laid the foundation for making the process of making concrete more sustainable. For Quirks and Quarks, I'm Olsi Sirakina. And that's it for Quirks and Quarks this week. If you'd like to get in touch with us, our email is quirks at cbc.ca. Or just go to the contact link on our webpage at cbc.ca slash quirks, where you can read my latest blog or listen to our audio archives. You can also follow our podcast or get us on the CBC Listen app. It's free from the App Store or Google Play. Quirks and Quarks was produced by Olsi Sorokina, Sonia Biting, and Mark Crawley. Our senior producer is Jim Levins. I'm Bob McDonald. Thanks for listening.
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.